This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore Rand's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. It's really my pleasure uh, to introduce the Honorable Mike Rogers, uh, former congressman from Michigan. He served seven terms. Uh, but he really had a 30-year career of service that I think will likely go on for at least 30 more. Uh, Mike uh, served in the Michigan State Senate. He served in the United States Army with the Federal Bureau of Investigation, and then, as I noted, uh, seven terms in the U.S. House of Representatives, where in the last portion of it, he was the chairman of the House Select Committee uh, on Intelligence, And he really had distinguished service there uh, in a way that reached across the partisan divide in the Congress. He oversaw and provided congressional uh, oversight on some of the key controversial issues of the last handful of years, which includes Benghazi, the Snowden unauthorized disclosures of classified information, and the National Security Agency's collection programs. A testament to his exemplary stewardship of this committee uh, is that he and the uh, ranking Democratic uh, minority member will be honored in June uh, by the uh, Intelligence and National Security Alliance, which is uh, essentially an industry organization that salutes at various times uh, key leaders uh, in the community. But Mike has a clear sense of a longer term. Uh, He had distinguished service in the Congress, but he realizes that the contributions he might make to our country extend beyond that. Since leaving the Congress, he's engaged in a number of important uh, activities. He now has a nationally syndicated radio commentary uh, on Westwood One. He's a commentator on CNN on national security issues. Serves on a number of corporate advisory boards, including Trident Capital's new cybersecurity fund. And he'll be up at the RSA conference up in uh, San Francisco later this week, which is really a major meeting on cybersecurity issues. So it's really a pleasure to have him come to Rand. He is somebody who covers a wide range of issues very much like we do. Uh, and he approaches it in many ways in a nonpartisan, pragmatic fashion, in many ways like we try and do. So please join me in welcoming uh, Congressman Mike Rogers. Let me get right into the topic of today's discussion. Extend my welcome to you as well. It's great to see you again, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Is a bipartisan national security policy possible in today's political environment? You were praised for your leadership on the House Intelligence Committee for approaching national security country first in a bipartisan manner. So you have experience with bipartisan national security policy. You, you lived it as, uh, in your chairmanship of the committee. And let's address this question in a very specific way, the Iran deal. Uh, we have seen an extraordinary expression of difference from Republicans in the deal. One, a letter from 47 Senate Republicans, open letter to Iran's leadership, 
and an invitation to the Prime Minister of Israel uh, to speak before the Congress, both with the intent to challenge, perhaps even undermine, the president's policies during a time of very sensitive negotiations when uh, it might be added that the UK, France, and Germany are also involved in negotiations, good friends of the United States on our side. Does this, is the Iran case evidence that we may have, uh, we may have crossed a divide here? Um, I mean, this is a tough issue, and, but, and I would say up front, there is bipartisan opposition to the deal as well. So it's, this isn't Republicans on one side, Dem- all Democrats and the president on the other side. There is a real cross section of individuals who look at these issues, and there are Democrats who have come over. Mm-hmm. So it's not necessarily as hyper-partisan. There are some passionate disagreements about the, the, the way it was uh, brought about, and I think the the framework of the deal that concerns people who I think do this for a living. And I, I was involved in all of that as chairman uh, after the, the disclosure of the secret negotiations in Oman. Um, and so there's, let me back up. I, I, one of the things that I thought that the administration did wrong, even if they wanted to have this negotiation, let's set, set aside what your belief is on uh, negotiating with Iran. Um, and talks are never bad. You know, it's, I, I never think talking is a bad thing. Uh, it's what you agree to that may or may not have that bad consequence. When that happened, they, they designed it to specifically go around even the national security committees on the Hill. I, I think that was a strategic mistake for a couple of reasons. It pushed away Democrats that may have been inclined to be with the president. Uh, and it just raised the suspicion of Republicans that, hey, if, if you're not talking to us about it, it tells me there's something really bad in here. Um, I don't even know what it is yet. Uh, you know, that old story about the, the pile of manure where somebody's digging through and saying there's got to be a pony in here somewhere. Um, yeah, you've heard that joke, I know. The three, this, this table right here, thank you very much. I appreciate that. And the rest of you will send it to you. In a, in a, um, that... That set this, I think, this policy up for what you see now playing out uh, in public. And that is really no way to bridge that bipartisanship. And I'll tell you how we did it uh, in a very partisan place, in an environment in Washington, D.C. that was hyper-partisan and, and unfortunately in many cases still is. We just sat down with my Democrat ranking member, who you know is a, is a personal friend of mine now, um, and we just said, this is just too important. So we have the 16 intelligence agencies, all the policy review, all the budget work. Uh, in many cases, it's an odd committee because you do real-time checkoff of very sensitive operations that, are, that the, our intelligence services are conducting. So it's timely and important and serious, and we better get it right. And so we just decided we weren't going to do that. Now, it doesn't mean we didn't have disagreements. It just, obviously, we came, came at some issues from a different perspective, but we agreed that we were just going to sit down and work through it. Uh, and in many cases, we did agree, and then the cases that we didn't agree, we decided to work through it. Think about how this Iran deal unfolded. There was never that time to sit down and say, all right, I may disagree with what you're doing, but maybe we can forge uh, some understanding of what a framework would look like based on what we know. That never happened. And I think that was, again, a strategic mistake on behalf of the president. If you're Israel, think about uh, where their perspective is. And sometimes we get caught up in the American perspective is always the right perspective. 
we we want to portray that to what we think Putin should or shouldn't be doing. We want to portray that to what we think Israel should or shouldn't be doing. In the course of this deal, this the the, the bad feeling started long before this Iran deal ever got started. And I argue, as as chairman, the where I really saw the fracture start. I mean, it was kind of rubbing up against each other, but the fraction really started when there was a leak in the press about plans for refueling if Israel was going to go in and take out those nuclear sites. I don't remember that. I think it was 2012, I think. Um, and it was leaked and, and sourced to a senior administration official. I, I happened to be in Israel when all that was uh, kind of coming about. Um, and you could see, I mean, think about your ally telling your enemy what your battle plans are. That's the way they looked at it. And boy, then I really saw our relationships just tear in half, and it just progressively got worse. So with all this, with the secret meetings, with that particular event, you can see how this is, to me, is not the right example of how you can have a bipartisan agreement on national security. But you can see, I think, is a great study of how it really really stopped any real opportunity to have a bipartisan discussion on if you were going to negotiate with Iran, what would that look like? What, how would you do it? How would you set it up? Uh, what, what would you ask for them to give to get to the table, which never happened, right? That would have been my position. If you're going to do that, they have to give you something to come to even show up to the party. We actually gave them cash to show up to our party. Um, that's always a bad sign. That's not a great party. I mean, that's what my mother would tell me. Um, and so none of those things, none of those discussions got to happen. I think that there would have been some ground. I mean, if they'd have come to talk to me, I would have certainly sat down and said, here's my concerns. Here's kinds of things I would uh, put into any deal for any initial discussion on any arrangement. But none of those co consultations happen. And I think that's why, yes, that can happen. This is a really long answer. Yes, you can have bipartisan policy uh, conclusions, but Iran, I think, was so different because of all of the history and baggage that came with the deal coming to light or the framework coming to light. Let's just stay on Iran for, for one more uh, minute. What, in your view, would be a worse outcome if you look a couple of years down the road? If there is not a deal, that the negotiations break down and playing out the consequences of what might happen that way, or if there is a deal, which do you think would be worse for the national security of the United States and, and our allies in the region? I look at it this way. So let's say that everything works the way the framework is designed. They'll, they get to keep an enrichment level that allows them to continue research on a nuclear weapon, right? 5,800 or whatever the last round was is not enough for a civilian nuclear program, but it is enough to develop a nuclear weapon or do the research to develop a nuclear weapon. They get to maintain all their missiles and missile research and, and, uh, uh, and purchase of missile parts. They get freedom of cash, of which they didn't have, including barter trading and, and whatnot. Um, and they get to continue weaponization, and the Quds Force gets to stay in Yemen. This is if the deal works. This is the best outcome. Uh, that's the good deal. Maybe the good deal isn't even a good deal. If you think about what will happen with this, I think this, that's why people who look at this every day like me are really worried about the consequences of this deal. Because you've left them as a nuclear legitimate uh, developer of, of uh, 
at least in the, the business of trying to understand nuclear weapons. You haven't stopped any of their malign activity uh, in neighboring countries, right? They're going to be in Iraq. They're going to be in Sana'a. They're going to be in Bahrain, which we've, we've seen activity there that's really concerning of late. Uh, they're, oh, we know that they're trying to cause trouble in Jordan. We see them in Syria. None of that changes. If they signed the deal tomorrow and got exactly what they wanted, none of that changes. That's why I, I'm almost a taken back. And in some ways, the, the naivete of the folks sitting around the table selling this as a good deal, that's, that is their deal. And if it works out just the way they want, that's what we get left with. Boy, that's, I, I, don't, I, I can't even say the good deal is a good deal. So now the problem is this. We have sanctions are already falling apart. The ability for us to, I think the president calls them snap back, um, that rubber band has lost its elasticity. There it will be no snapback uh, on, on sanctions. The Russians have done two really dangerous things. Oh, by the way, they were involved in the secret negotiations, which I thought was a mistake. So they did, they did the energy deal about a year and a half ago that's going to help on improving their production capability in Iran. Right? Uh, they were, I think that was their first shot uh, at preparing Iran without sanctions. Problem is that helps their ability to fight through sanctions, number one. Number two, the last deal also had grain trade, barter trade for grain, construction material, and construction equipment. This is a Russian deal. Right? That got signed and done, which means the, pro- the areas where they were having problem getting grains uh, and their ability to trade fuel for something of, of their need, construction equipment, that's already happening, right? So now we, and we gave them cash, about a billion dollars, and we allowed them to trade precious metals. So they're doing that now in neighboring countries. So all of that pressure that we had on the financial side is already deteriorating before our eyes. So in June, if the Iranians say, you know what, we're done. You, just, you want too much from us. What our problem is, what do we do, right? Now, now we're at a loss because sanctions aren't coming back in the way that they were. And even if they do, they have all these pressure relief valves that are out there. And, of course, then the, the Russians uh, released their SS-300s. Now, they were already going to do this. Uh, for some time, we were able to pressure them to do it, which I thought was an administration coup, by the way. Uh, good work on them. The problem is now they've gone ahead and delivered them, which, again, diminishes our ability to be to, to, to thump our chest on a military option. It will make it much more difficult for uh, Israel to do it, and it will make it much more difficult for the United States to do it, even in combination, because these are really sophisticated, state-of-the-art, you know, shoot up to 16,000 feet pretty accurately. Um, and we have ways to counter, uh, to counter those, but it's expensive and it's costly, and it means you're not going to be nearly as effective. So I, I'm I'm concerned that where we are is is candidly in a very bad place on the deal. You're going to dr- uh, dr- heading to a major conference after this to to address that issue. You were a, a leader in the House in yeah. cybersecurity legislation. How can the U.S. get ahead of the threat to our government, our companies, our citizens from hackers, criminals, and cyber terrorists? What what can we be doing, and what would you advise we be doing? Yeah, the, the single biggest, most important thing we can do, uh, and we were able to pass this in the House, by the way, in a bipartisan way, is cyber sharing. About 85% of our networks in America are private sector networks. 
And contrary to popular belief, the National Security Agency does not monitor those networks. So all of that uh, cyber warfare that's going on on American businesses and enterprise happens without the NSA knowledge unless they see it happening overseas first. They might see the firing of that shot from, you know, fill-in country A. Um, then they can, they can maybe possibly do something about it. But you think about the sheer volume of traffic that's flying around the world. They can't do that. So the best thing that we can do is empower the private sector to help defend themselves. And contrary, again, to popular belief, uh, the, the, our intelligence services are pretty good about going over and finding out some really nasty source code. You know, the zeros and ones that get in your computer and do really bad things. And it's getting more and more sophisticated as, as the days go by. So what they can do is, in a classified way, if we can find the right framework, and by the way, we can do this within 30 days. All we have to do is have the political will. We flip the switch. This is happening across America. Uh, it allows them in real time, machine to machine, right? so the speed of light, share that malicious source code, the, co the configuration that looks zeros and ones in this configuration, uh, with private sector. The private sector takes that, protects their own networks. The government doesn't do it. Uh, and it's not foolproof. doesn't mean people won't get through, but it will stop a tremendous amount of what we're losing now in, in economic loss uh, due to cyber espionage, cyber attack, and destructive behavior. That, to me, is the single most simple thing that we can do. Uh, then there's a whole host of other things we're going to have to do beyond that. If we do that, it at least gives us a fighting chance uh, in, in cyberspace. And right now, by the way, we are in a cyber war. Most Americans don't know it. And candidly, we're losing. Where are we losing, too? Is the threat in cyber mostly from governments? Is it from criminals? How would, where would yes. you say both to both? <laughs> Unfortunately, yes. And here's something that we, we're seeing this odd morphing that's very concerning. Um, and I won't mention any names, but there is international organized crime groups are starting to use nation state tactics. And they're blurring the line between what is an intelligence or military offensive effort and what is a cyber criminal enterprise, and like I said, I won't mention any names, Russia, that um, it is getting very blurry. So we think there's a lot of sharing, which is, this is dangerous because at least a government will make some rational decisions in its use of certain really bad cyber activity. If an international organized crime, and I used to work organized crime as an FBI agent, if they get a tool or a technique and they can actually make money, they have no concern what the consequences are. They don't care. That's concerning. So we're seeing that change, um, and that means that these international organized crime groups are getting better. Uh, because of what's available on the net, I mean, if I can tell you this antidote quickly, Iran did the same thing. So they went after a great American company, the Sands Resort Casino, because someone had the courage to stand up and say, a nuclear Iran is a bad idea. So they took that as an offense. They unleashed their uh, cyber defenses, cyber military, and this is pretty interesting. They went to a casino uh, in um, Pennsylvania, got into a, uh, what do you call it, the, uh, oh, help me out, slot machines, thank you. I was just checking, no, I know you've been there. Uh, was this, this was a test, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. So they got into that. They were able to jump over into the front office operations of this really small kind of an outpost of a casino in, in Pennsylvania. 
They lurked there, and then were trying to get in, back, swim back upstream to get back to Las Vegas to get to their headquarters. It took them a long time. See so you know how patient they were. It took them months. One guy comes out to do the security check in Pennsylvania. He logs in with his uh, super user passcode. Right? And the super user on your system is the, is the person that gets everything. Right? You, you, every, every system has one. Uh, didn't think about it. Didn't change it. Got on the airplane. Went back to uh, Las Vegas. They, ha- they grabbed that password. They swam right from there, right back to the headquarters, and cost them about $40 million in damage. This was a country that decided they were going to p- punish an American company. That should give a little bead of sweat on all of our foreheads. This means that the cyber game has completely changed. We never saw that two years ago. We didn't see it three years ago. We saw bad actors trying to do these kinds of things. But now you have nation states believing that they can take a destructive action against an American company. That's what I worry about. Before we open up the floor to uh, questions, let me ask you one more. Uh, You are now very much engaged in shaping the national security debate heading into the 2016 elections. And I want to hear about um, your organization, Americans for Peace, Prosperity, and Security. But as someone focused especially on the Republican side, on the national security debate, do you believe that Republicans may be starting at a disadvantage on those issues, especially given Hillary Clinton's experience as senator and secretary of state, and that the Republicans have so many governors who haven't had that type of engagement on their side? And given that, what are the themes that Republicans and, and Democrats, for that matter, should be addressing in the 2016 campaign? Oh, look at the time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, and, and I do, and I believe strongly enough in it to try to interject the debate in the 2016 election for both sides. And, you know, the, the best outcome for the country first is that all of the candidates stop their politics at the water's edge as the world is in rough shape. And on January 21st, 2017, I don't care who the president of the United States is, they are going to get slapped upside the head with the realities of how dangerous the world is and how contemptuous most of it is to the United States. And we're going to have to rebuild a fundamental trust with allies that have been, feel like that they've been abused, uh, with growing malign influences of Russia modernizing its nuclear fleet. Uh, China now this year will, for the first time, have a nuclear triad. That means they'll have submarines in the water. By likely by fall, doing strategic patrols with nuclear missiles on them. Not a great outcome, which means India is going to want to get there pretty soon. Right? We're going to have a whole bunch of stuff in the water floating around that's really, really dangerous. Right? That's on a good day. That's, the, that's our best hope. Uh, you have this counter, counter strategy moving out through the waters. So I think that, that yes, we have a, a likely Secretary of State. That brings some certain gravitas uh, uh, to the table. I don't think that in and of itself will do it. I think Americans are at a point where they want a discussion. I think the hangover from Iraq is about over. The Alka-Seltzer has plopped, that has been consumed, and we understand the world has changed. And we're going to have to position ourselves, and we're going to have to have an honest uh, discussion with ourselves about what that looks like. I argue for those who like this notion that we should pull back from the world, I argue, take a look. This is what you get. Right? Uh, by us being out in the world, we do push back for these countries making bad decisions. The Chinese taking the islands and throwing some sand on it and building the runway to push out their territorial waters, right? If we don't deal with it, 
we're going to deal with it with a minor skirmish between Japan and China or Vietnam and China. I guarantee in 24 months, within 24 months, somebody's going to bump into somebody. And then they, then they have to ask the question, what happens next? Do they, do they ratchet back or do they ratchet it up? Right? That's where the United States can play a significant leadership strength role in the world to stop those kind of things from happening. And so I don't think you have to be a Mike Rogers who you know, eats and lives and breathes this every day to be president, but you have to have the right understanding about how dangerous the world is and how important it is for America to be engaged. And so one of the reasons we're trying to do this is allow a forum like this, by the way, where a candidate can talk about what they believe and how they get there and no longer think about what we do in politics today. We show up in, if, you know, in Iowa and you say, listen, they get a national security question, you say, I'm for Israel, ISIS is bad, and we don't like Putin. Let's talk about ethanol. <laughs> right? And that's it. Now we don't, we're, we're done talking about national security. I argue we had better prepare ourselves because we will be tested as a nation. Our candidates should be tested as well. And again, are, are they going to assemble really bright people around them on national, who know national security, are going to give them the right advice and counsel? For the right reasons, I'm worried about that. Right? I don't expect my president to be Eisenhower um, or you know, whomever, John F. Kennedy, right, a war hero himself. That's not likely going to happen. So the next step is, can they have the right principled stand on who they think America is and what our role in the world should be? And can they put the right people around them and have an understanding of the consequences of both action and inaction? Right? There are consequences to both in foreign policy. Uh, if we can get that discussion, I think Americans are going to be ready to make a, ch- a choice. Could be a governor, could be a senator, could be a former secretary of state. So we are going to open up the floor to uh, question and answer. Uh, we welcome your questions. Uh, we ask that people raise their hand, and we will come around to you. Uh, it is being recorded, so we kindly do ask that you wait until you have the microphone. Okay, we have a question here. Thank you. Arnie Porath. Uh, if, the fr- if the framework is uh, agreed to, what does that hold for Israel? Well, uh, you know, let's, I always think it's best to walk in their shoes a minute. So their principal partner in, in uh, Egypt is now coming back, but for a while there they lost any stability in the Sinai. As a matter of fact, they're still trying to fight through that, literally fight through this regaining stability. So that means there's a border they, that Israel didn't have to worry about, now has to worry about. You have uh, ISIS on their uh, on the, in the near the Golan Heights firing rockets into Israel or, uh, artillery shells, excuse me, uh, into Israel. You have Iran, who has provided weapons to Hamas, right, which would defy any logic of the Sunni Shia fight. But it was any enemy of Israel was an enemy of the, or a friend of theirs. That will continue unabetted. So if you're Israel, you have some really tough decisions to make. I think you have some very tough decisions to make. Because not only am I worried about their nuclear development, I'm also worried about their, if I'm Israel, remember I'm for Israel, they're una- they have no restraints now on their missile development. Uh, you, you saw what the last round of missiles did. They were getting a little more accurate, a little more plentiful. That was all Iranian supplied, or most of it, the vast majority of it, Iranian supplied to Hamas. Now I got a problem. I think Israel's options are not very good. Candidly. And I think that's why you hear Netanyahu um, trying to set up this notion of, hey, if those, if, remember, he said before, if uh, those SS, uh, excuse me, the S 300 missiles 
got into Israel, I will do something about it. That was a year and a half ago. I don't know if his calculus has changed. And my argument is maybe it's even changed to be more aggressive, not less aggressive. I'm just speaking from this. If I were sitting in his shoes, I would think I'd better do something about those missiles being functioning um, and, and taking away an option for me to stop a shipment of other kinds of missiles that are coming at Israel. I, I think he is in a really, uh, he, Mr. Netanyahu and the entire country is in a bad place with options. And I think the more we take away their ability to have an option on the table, the more they're going to have to act sooner. I, I don't know how else they, they're going to handle it. Mike, we have a question here to your left. Hello, Mike. Uh, Bruce Munster. Bruce. Has the administration or Congress defined <clears throat> what level of cyber attack or cyber activity would constitute an act of war? Yeah, this was, uh, and the problem is no. Um, and we're not even close to getting to a policy understanding of, A, what would constitute an act of war, and B, what would our response be? Um, and it's not for lack of capability. If t- tomorrow we decided we wanted to go and, and cause, you know, I always say flick somebody in the head with a cyber uh, reaction, if you will, we could do it, no problem. The problem is this. Again, they're not going to come and attack the NSA. They know what they're doing. They're going to come and attack the private sector networks that fuel America's economy. And we've watched them do it before. That's the biggest concern. So my argument is, you know, I always used to say, if you're going to go punch your neighbor in the nose, it's best to hit the weight room first for a couple of months, you know, get in shape. It's probably going to hit you back. problem is we have no defense right today if they decide to come back in any meaningful way to a, to a, even a response to a cyber attack. So, no, the, the problem is we don't have good definition in policy. Our policy is woefully, it's, it's not written, it, it's not stated. We have some tactical, meaning if we have troops in the field, we can do some cyber offense to protect their ability to operate in the field. But beyond that, we really don't have a very clear policy uh, to, to, to react to any major event. If you look at what happened with Sony or even the Sands Casino issue, nothing, right? And now we're finding that Russia may change their calculation on, if you're hurting me with sanctions, does that mean I can hurt you with a cyber attack for, to your finances? There's, there's public reports have showed that they have, the Russian intelligence services have showed up in some interesting places in our economy and you have to scratch your head and ask, why, did, why were they there? Now, luckily, nothing happened. But why were they there? That would be a change for them. And if they decide to flip that switch, we, we might have some trouble on our hands. Mike, so we have, we're a long way from get, getting the answer to that, too. We have a question in the middle. Yes, Mike, thanks so much for a wonderful presentation. We all really uh, appreciate you coming. My question is about the uh, nuclear uh, deal with Iran. Mm. And... Uh, I was shaking on my way to uh, the Rand Corporation this morning, hearing on the radio that uh, uh, Obama is thinking about giving in to Iran with respect to giving up all of the sanctions on day one of the deal. Can you please tell me that even Obama is not so desperate for a deal that he would do that? Boy, is it that time again already? (laughs) I I, I am very, very concerned about... um, the length, and again, this is what happens when you do it without real robust cooperation with Congress. Nobody's really sure, both Republicans and Democrats, by the way. This is not a partisan issue. 
Uh, it's a policy difference and a strong policy difference on behalf of many. I don't. I, I would hope that they would never be as naive to do that. I, I would hope that the team around them would have better sense to say that that's. I don't care if you got the best deal in the world. You don't give everything back the first day. Um, I don't care what deal it, it is. Um, you know, I don't, you, private business transactions every day. You get a little, you know, money you put in the bank to hold for the deal, right? I mean, I'm selling real estate. We should, we ought to be able to do it on the development of nuclear weapons, right? So I, I think, um, you know, I, I, I am a little worried about their their notion that this is a legacy item versus thinking through the process of, well, what is the consequence of doing that? I mean, if you give them all of the resources they need up front, we are we may be in some trouble because I don't know why they would even follow. And, you know, the, the IAEA said they haven't even lived up to 11 of the 12 requirements already. Already. Which tells me they're not really interested in doing this the right way. So I hope not. I don't know. I'd, I'd like to have a, a, a faith that they wouldn't wouldn't do that, I hope. Okay, we have a question to your... Hi, Mike. Could you comment on our uh, security provisions with respect to our power grid and satellites? Uh, satellites is a, is a whole other discussion as well. So in 2007, the Chinese fundamentally changed our satellite game. They launched a, a missile from land that hit a satellite traveling at about, I guess it was 30, 31,000 miles an hour around the Earth and hit it. Uh, which is no small feat. That fundamentally changed our dominance in space. So the U.S. pretty much dominated space without, it was never a contested space for us at all. So any of our planning, ever, all of our budgeting, so we do next generation of architecture and what it looks like and what new great cool technology we can put on satellites to help protect America, all of that changed. Um, and, of course, the Russians are in on the game now, and now they have things called, according to public reports, killer satellites that they launched that's whole purpose is to go cause harm to another satellite. So you think, well, what does that mean? Imagine if you walk outside and there's no more GPS um, and everything else that you do uh, via satellite communications is gone, right? Have a tr huge impact. Matter of fact, we teach young sailors now, think about this, they retaught them how to use sextants. Think of that, right? That tells you a lot meaning that there could be a way that we might not have our GP, uh, GPS-based traveling systems even for our military. That's a problem. Um, and so we're, we're, we're working through that. I feel pretty good about the, our understanding of the problem. Uh, and as chairman, I tried to allocate some money on this last year uh, to make sure that we are prepped for this next generation. We're going to have to reconfigure and rethink how we launch satellites and what that satellite looks like. Think about it. It really means we're, it's going to cost us an ungodly amount of money to do the same thing we're doing right now. What it means because we're going to have to figure out either a redundancy, how to survive, uh, or they'll have to be able to defend themselves. Both of the technology, you know, and, and satellites. If, for those of you who are interested, everything, all the cost of a satellite is weight. The more weight you put on it, the more expensive it is, both to operate, to sustain, to get it, you know, the fuel to get it up, the rockets to get it up. So we're we're. We know what the problem is. I think we're working through it. We've got a ways to go, but that's gonna that'll change forever. We'll never be in uncontested space again, unfortunately. Uh, and the second part of that question, power grid. Um, you know, again, there was a great report. Uh, it was a company called Mandiant that was that was purchased by FireEye that did a 
public report, things that we knew in classified settings for years, that they had already find, found that the Chinese intelligence services were already in our electric grid. And you say, well, why would they do that? It's called prepping the battlefield. So they're there. They're not. They're, I don't think that they were going to flip the switch because they were mad at us. But if something were to happen, if they decided they were going to invade Taiwan and we wanted to send the Fifth Fleet or Seventh Fleet, they could flick the switch and cause us real problem, right? So they just wanted to be there on our grid. That should have been a shock to most Americans. Unfortunately, it was not. Uh, we all kind of yawned and said, "Well, my lights work. You know, it's all good." We are going to have, we're, we're not where we need to be on protecting our, our grid, mainly because we are so interconnected. And what it, it's been interesting now that I'm on this side of it and doing some uh, venture capital look at some of these small cyber companies, a lot of companies don't even know what's on their networks, which surprised me a little bit. So mapping a network is more complicated than you would think. So it's pretty hard to defend a network if you don't know what's on it. Think of the number of applications that you have on your iPhone. Every time you add an application to your system in any way and it interfaces with another system, that's a vulnerability chain that your network security guy may or may not be aware of. So we this happens in our electric grid. It happens at the Pentagon. It ha- it's really quite an amazing phenomenon that we're going to have to get the handle on. And here's the second part of that bad part, the Internet of Things, or the Internet of Things, where your refrigerator, your HV, you know, your heater, uh, your coffee maker, it's all going to be connected to the Internet. And there are some great economic reasons to do this. I mean, it's a very powerful tool for the economy. But I don't know about you. Every time I walk by my refrigerator, I think it's working against me already, let alone now that it's connected to the internet and I find out that they might be cyber hacking me from my refrigerator. <laughs> really? Really? Um, we, we, we are not really ready from a security platform on how to introduce all these new things, and that will also affect our electric grid security. So because it's not built with security in mind, it's built for speed of information. The internet was never be- built for security. It was built for speed. I want to communicate as much and as fast as I can. Problem is, now we've got this other other side of it where they're using that part that weakness against us uh, and it is, it's really going to be a fascinating thing it's going to be a f- really interesting to watch how that works are the companies going to be made to secure those devices before they put them on the internet or are we going to find a way to secure it after it's in the internet i'm not sure i know the answer sitting here today i don't know if anybody does really yeah we've got another question back here on your right Thank you very much, Chris Lawson. Um, I had a, just a question further to your point that you were just making. Um, you know, I, I read the other day that, that um, I think it's uh, Microsoft just did a huge deal with a with a Chinese um, tech giant. Doesn't at some point the, this become almost like the the nuclear you know kind of um, stalemate during the Cold War, where you know because if they did hobble a, a something like Microsoft now, it would essentially be shooting themselves in the foot because they're so tied to a Chinese company. Is there a point where the the cyber war really kind of becomes a deterrent kind of situation where we're so interconnected with these these firms that to really unleash a huge cyber attack on a on a foreign um, state would come back to reverberate against you just as much as 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 would like a nuclear attack? Yeah, I, I just I don't think people equate the nuclear attack to the cyber attack, even though the consequences could be not close, but. You could cause a lot of death, mayhem, and chaos in an economy with a cyber attack. The problem with this integration with Chinese systems, and and I'm a free market guy. I'm completely passionately free market. I think capitalism has brought more people out of poverty than any government program could ever hope to accomplish. 
Here's the problem. They have stolen almost all of their prosperity from countries like the United States. And when we integrate in a way without asking them to have any appreciation for intellectual property, I worry about what we're doing. So they're an export economy that has, you know, some estimates are as, uh, you know, over a trillion dollars of intellectual property just from the United States. That doesn't count Asia. That doesn't count Europe. Doesn't count Germany, right? Uh, which is, in, you know, one of the other kings, if you will, or queens of intellectual property economies, innovation economies. They have been getting ripped off for years. And China is using that to artificially compete against the rest of the world. And now we're giving them, we're leaping them ahead on cyber technology in a way that I'm very concerned about. So the IBM deal, I don't know if that's the one you were talking about. It was an IBM deal. And the Chinese have said publicly in their own publications, this is our way not to have to buy American products in the future on cyber. So we'll control our own technological destiny. I don't know about you, but I, I think that's a bad thing. Because they're not doing it for the purposes of economy of scale. They're doing it for the purposes of blocking out American companies and continuing their path of prosperity through theft. And I know that's hard language, but we better call it what it is because we're losing our fannies in the intellectual property game to China's theft. I mean, we are just losing this game. Um, so I worry about that. I, I see your point. Uh, I think that we might not survive. If it gets to that point, uh, we're, we're going to be on the losing end of that stick already. And I, you know, I, I argue if we're going to influence, I would love China to compete against China in a free market. You follow the rules, we'll follow the rules. I think we can, we'll do just fine. Problem is, they're an export economy. When they become a consumer economy, I've seen 25, 30, 50 years that where they can be just like the United States. They can survive of you know make sell what they make within the country you know, that consumer economy position, you can't really influence the United States in that way because we're a consumer economy. That's why we're so such an important economic power in the, in the world. When China gets, flips that switch, how do you influence them? And if every institution they have has survived on theft of someone else's intellectual property, how are you going to stop them from doing that in the future? That's why I think it's such an important thing that we have to solve now. If we wait to this cyber detente, I think we're on the losing end of that. Mike, we have a question here to your left. Hi, good afternoon. Um, Section 215 of the Patriot Act Mm -hmm. is due for renewal by June 1st deadline. Uh, What do you think Congress will do and what do you think Congress should do about that? And secondly, about the the NSA, uh, do you think they've regained um, enough public trust uh, to resume business as usual? Yeah, you know, this was the probably the hardest time I had as being chairman. It was two, two for two reasons. Um, I always I supported the program when it was classified, and I did something really unusual in Washington. I supported it when it became public as well. Um, I saw a lot of people running for the corner saying, "Oh, I didn't know anything about it." No, they knew about it. The program, the, and what happened is the political narrative got ahead of the facts, and it was the most frustrating thing for me. Because we could never get the facts caught up with the debate. It was always, matter of fact, if I went home today in my old district and, and said, how many people believe that the NSA is recording your cell phone conversations, even the ones that go overseas? I, I'm going to guess that 80% would raise their hand. And I said, well, okay, well, how about if, if they record, they're recording your emails? 
and putting them in a place so they can read them later. 90%, right? which is completely wrong. But the narrative and debate that came out with the unauthorized leaks put us behind the narrative. We could never catch up. Um, I'm hoping that they get to a place on 215. We have to have the public with us. There's no doubt about that with the intelligence services. And so they have to have a comfort level with it. That is the fundamental foundation of our democracy, and I passionately believe that. If we can get to a place where we agree on the facts, I think most Americans are going to yawn and go, really? That, that's what everybody was worried about? Um, I think they, uh, there were some changes in the interim, actually, last year that we made uh, about you know, what that information is. And it's some, I won't get into all the details. I could bore you to death with it. It's called metadata. It's basically, you know, here's, here's the best way I've heard it described. You get a, a letter from your friend in the mail. It has to from on it. That's really what they were looking at which is what your mailman looked at on your personal mail. They also looked at the metadata on, on the to from. No content, had no idea what was in the letter, couldn't read the letter, it was against the law to read the letter. All of that was the same on the, on the electronic side. But that got so distorted, people didn't realize that, and, and it became that the government was collecting everything and hoarding it in the basement and couldn't wait to find out about Aunt May's bunions. Oh, that was some of the best reading I did as chairman. I mean, I'm just kidding. Well, you guys, you've got to really help me out here at this table. You've got to help me. Um, so I think we'll probably get a, a negotiated position on 215 uh, that allows at least, remember, the goal here was this started after um, somebody overseas at 9-11 called into the United States and talked to somebody in San Diego, right? And basically what we know now, forensically, was that was the conversation where they said, okay, go ahead and do it. Right? That person ended up flying into the Pentagon, killing uh, what was part of that operation. We had no legal ability to intercept or, or find out what that phone call was, and we knew it was a terrorist overseas. So the goal of this program is to say, if you have information that says we know that it was a safe house that we knew about, that was the, the worst part of this whole thing. It came from an Al-Qaeda safe house, of which the government already knew existed. So what we said is, that's ridiculous. If we know it's an Al-Qaeda safe house and it's calling in, I would like to know who they're talking to, personally. Um, and that's really all this does. And then, then it triggers all the FBI warrants that they have to go through. There's a process. So I think we're going to get back to that on the Section 215. At least I hope so. Um, you know, they made it all about library records. It was never about library records. It was about getting the access to those calls as they were coming back into the United States, which I think is an important... If you're going to stop terrorist acts here... And think about how many people are in Syria today with Western passports, maybe even American passports. I want to know if they pick up the phone and we know that they're engaged in terrorist activity, which we have a lot of those people we know about. If they're calling back in the States, I don't know about you. I'd like to know who they're talking to and what they're talking about. And it doesn't mean we forego any warrants. You'd have to get warrants if they're talking to a U.S. citizen in the United States. You'd still have, the FBI would trigger the warrants, but at least you'd be able to go to the FBI and say, they're talking to this guy in San Diego, you guys better go figure out who this person is. It would trigger all the investigative legal requirements that we have currently in the United States. I think that's where we're going to get. This is going to be really interesting. Last year, about, I want to say November, it was November, they offered an amendment that said you would have to get a warrant. A warrant, which is a pretty very high legal standard, even to, to get the call coming into the United States, even if we knew it to be a foreign citizen. That is an almost impossible standard. The scary part is it passed. 
Uh, there was all of five minutes debate on it. I think now people would be a little bit more aware of what they did. But again, this is the danger of this political narrative that was not consistent with the facts. That that thing passed. You would, I don't know how you could, as an old FBI guy, it would be nearly impossible for me to walk in and get probable cause from a judge on a terrorist who's calling from the tribal areas of Pakistan. Because just being from the tribal areas of Pakistan isn't enough. Not even close. Now, the, normally that's why we have two standards. One for citizens here, where you have this very high standard, and then one for intelligence matters overseas. For that very reason, they would have eliminated that. So I do think that there are some challenges going into this that could could put hurdles that I, I would think would be not helpful to our national security. But I think, I'm hoping that cooler heads will prevail knowing what we have now, right? I mean, ISIS is a mess. And this interconnected world we live in uh, with these folks having the ability to get back to the United States is really troubling. We better have some mechanism to protect ourselves uh, and still protect our civil rights. You, you, we don't have to do this. This notion you have to have more security or, or privacy, I never even believed that. I think that's a false argument from the very beginning. You can do both. Absolutely. We've got another question here in the, in the middle. Um, I know there's been private sector work in the security business for over oh, the last 30 years, and I was interested that you're actually involved in venture capital. So can you talk about what the private sector is doing in security and how they're working with NSA and the government? Um, you know, there's pretty clear legal bounds for what the private sector would do. I think most companies would love to, to pull the sheet over themselves. If, if, if I were a company out there and I knew that the NSA knew something bad was coming, I would love for them to be able to at least knock on my door and tell me. Under the current law, it's very odd. Uh, you can't really do that. So it's an odd thing. Once I know it's in your system, I can send it to the FBI, and they can go knock on your door and say, you know, clean up on aisle nine. <laughs> you got a problem. Um, that's really a bad way to secure our network. So I think they would have a more robust relationship. The law prohibits it. I'm not saying it's not without merit, but we need to be. We we, sh we need to understand what artificial hurdles we have built into our law. Most of this stuff was was based on copper wire systems in the <laughs> 70s, right? That's what our law was based on. A copper wire phone calls a copper wire phone. Um, those days are gone, and I don't think the law has married up to what our real threats are. Um, there's some great technology. And by the way, the government isn't going to solve private sector problems, and we should stop thinking that that's going to happen. It's the private sector technology with a little bit of information from the federal government that is really going to, I think, allow us to robustly defend ourselves in the private sector. It's really interesting technology that can sit on top of your network. It's been tried before that I think, if this comes about, could be a real game changer. That actually monitors your network, sees any new application coming. You sound, this sounds easy. It is really hard and complicated. Uh, it sounds easy. It connects to your network, and in real time, they can see any anomalies that are going to flow through your system, and you know all the flags go off. We're not there yet, believe it or not. We're not there yet. Um, if that comes out, I think that's going to be great. There's some great real-time monitoring companies out there, a lot of them up in Silicon Valley, who have created technology that can monitor in real time. The other one is credentials. We're going to get to a place where you will have a credential to do whatever whatever you do, and your company will be able to compartmentalize just like the intelligence com uh, community does, where it's I get on, I have my own credentials uh, that are fairly foolproof. There is such a thing. 
and I say, this is Mike Rogers, I want to get on, and I want to look at these three programs. And it would get in, and the system would say, mm, you can only see two of those. And by the way, I'm reporting you for even asking for the third one. Right? That, that's coming. It's not there yet. Uh, and encryption. The problem with encryption today is that it's horribly inconvenient. I mean, it's just horribly inconvenient. And people abandon it pretty quickly because it's, I want to think about how fast you, you know, you're typing and I know about half of you are driving and typing. <laughs> this table again, a lot of trouble. You need to see me after. Um, it, once they figure out how to get smooth, seamless encryption uh, on both ends of that conversation that doesn't inconvenience the user, I think that's, that's the next big ticket item in cybersecurity. Because it's easier to use. Now you have to, everybody see the lockbox. You got to plug it into your thing and you got to wait and then you got to download it and then you got to, it's a pain in the rear and most people abandon it pretty quickly. So once that happens, those are the three areas I would argue. <clears throat> and then uh, network mapping. You know, what is on my network and how do I find it? I think network ma- mapping companies are going to be kind of the next buzz for the cyberspace. We have a question at this table. I'm concerned about national security, and it seems like we keep getting whacked and whacked and whacked. When do we start retaliating on these bad actors out there? How do we reach out and cause some damage on that end? Yeah. Do you depend on cyber, or are you talking on terrorism or or everything? Yeah. I I have a little bit of a different. I I think you have to start back at your core. Um. You know, the, the military a few years ago, and I, I, I opposed this, and this was not a partisan issue. Republicans believed in it. Democrats believed in it. About the ability for us to stop worrying about being in two places at once. Does the United States military need to be in two places at once for any conflicts in the world? And I always thought that that missed the point of a peace through strength kind of dialogue on national security. It was never about actually wanting to be two places at once. It was about not wanting to be anywhere at once. And when we started scaling that notion back that we could actually respond in two places, you could see the decisions of people who filled in the holes for us, right? The Russians decided, hmm, I know they're engaged now in all kinds of trouble in the Middle East. They, can they really show up here if I get in trouble? Probably not. I think the Chinese decided, if you notice, within the last few years to go to their nuclear triad to push out their international boundaries because they don't believe that we have the capability to do it. Um, And sometimes the simplest statement is is the easiest way to get there. I had befriended a Middle East intelligence official um, who was a a wonderful guy, um, and we got to know each other pretty close, actually. And one day, this was about three or four years ago, he grabbed me and he said, Congressman, would you do me a favor? Would you tell America not to give up on themselves? He said, uh, who else is going to care about a small place like us and try to bring peace? The Chinese? The Russians? He said, it can only be the United States. Unfortunately, he was killed by a suicide bomber about six months later. Um, he was a wonderful guy. I think a loss to the world, really. But, but it, it brought it home for me that that is that core philosophy is, listen, we don't have to be engaged everywhere. We don't, you only need to schwack them maybe once to show them that you're serious. But you need to have this robust defense. If we want to be the global economy of the future, we're going to have to have a military that looks like we want to be the global economy of the future. Our Blue Water Navy, you know, Jefferson decided to build our Blue Water Navy because he was tired of people hijacking our ships and charging us ransom. You know, the French were paying. The Spanish were paying. We decided we weren't going to pay. 
And I argue that led to this de development of the world's greatest economy because commerce is our best diplomat. But it always helps to have the fifth fleet over one shoulder and the 101st over the other, right? Always a better way to yes. So we need to rebuild that, A, that reputation in the world, and B, really the capability. And I argue it's worth the investment. It's, it's, it's brought about the greatest standard of living in the history of the world. And not because we're engaged all the time. We don't want to be engaged all the time. I think the smaller we get, the more you're going to see us engaged in trouble spots around the world fighting for our lives. And I, I think this is a serious... We are in a really interesting place in America. I think we need to switch gears here a little bit and get back to who we were and understand that the economy is our way forward. And in order to do that and have our goods and services unmolested anywhere in the world, we need to have a military that backs that up. And we can't be afraid to use it if people disagree with our ability to do that. Right now, I, do, you, do you believe that anyone would believe that we'd have the capability to go in and stop the Houthis in Yemen? We haven't. Stop uh, ISIS from holding and, I mean, brutalizing uh, more, more Muslims than anything else in eastern Syria and Iraq? Nope. Did we stop the Russians from uh, you know, doing joint exercises in the Arctic in a way that was pretty meaningful and a change in military strategy for them? Nope. Did we do anything on the new nuclear triad for the Chinese or them launching a missile and taking out space? Nope. So the world is seeing these actions and they're reacting to them. Someone will fill this, this role for the United States. Somebody's going to fill it. I argue there's been no greater force for good in the world than us. And I, I hate to cede one ounce of it because I think that means death and destruction and poor economies for the future. Sorry, that's, a, that's my soapbox. <laughs> and it's not too late, by the way. Not, all is not lost. It's just really challenging. So this is a type of wide-ranging conversation that one expects to see at RAND and certainly here at the Policy Circle. My colleague, uh, Andrew, had both an academic career, a congressional career, has a research career here at RAND, and a journalist has shown in his engagement with Congressman uh, Rogers a skilled ability to tease out a wide range of issues. Sir, you give us good, uh, you give us faith that members of Congress are not just puppets and not mm -hmm. sort of weak need, but they're people <laughs> of broad gauged insight on a wide range of topics. The topics we've covered here has been not just a single issue, not just a single party view, but a broad range. So please join me in thanking Andrew and Thanks. Congressman Miles. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. Always good to see you. This presentation is provided as a public service by the Rand Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at Rand, visit us online at www.rand.org/events.